Okay, you may turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And their pew Bibles are different from our pew Bibles, so I can't tell you what page number that's on. Ephesians chapter 5. I had kind of thought when I left uh, to go out east to visit Cindy's family, and then we visited our two boys. One's uh, Ryan and his wife, Katie, are in Chattanooga, and then John is in Louisville. I kind of thought we would have wrapped up Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. But jumping in this week, after having two weeks off, I thought, well, I at least need to give you a little bit of context. And, and so kind of looking at those verses, I thought there was an awful lot more that could have been said. So the context will be the third part of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. And then we'll pick up with new verses next week, I'm pretty sure. In Ephesians chapters 4, 5, and 6, I will remind you that Paul is giving instructions for Christian virtues and what a godly, holy life ought to look like. He is not saying, if you do these things, you will become a Christian. He is saying, if you are a child of God by faith, this is what your life looks like now that you are a Christian. So this is what follows conversion what follows salvation, it's not what brings salvation. And I think I've made that pretty clear over the weeks and months, but it's something I really can't stress enough because it's so easy for people to fall fall into moralistic thinking that if I live this moral life, that one day I will stand before God and I'll feel pretty good because I even went to church when they gathered on Sunday evening instead of the morning. Or I put money in an offering plate. Or I volunteered for some service or activity. Those things don't make you a Christian. When I stand before God one day, I want to plead Christ and Christ alone. But if I'm going to plead that on that day, it should be evident in my life right now. And so that, these are some of the instructions that Paul is giving us in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. So I'm going to back all the way up to verse 1. I want you to pay attention to the three therefores, because that's what I'm going to start with. These therefores are kind of a summary, uh, uh, a little bit of a peak before he climbs a little bit higher. And then we'll break it down from there. So Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now we've got three therefores, and there's a lot in those verses. And I'm not going to deal with everything in those verses, because we've already spent two weeks on those verses. So if you think I'm skipping something, it's probably in the audio from one of those other two weeks. We're testing the audio tonight. I'm not sure if we're going to actually get a digital recording or not, uh, but we'll find out by the end of the service. The three therefores. The first therefore is in the first verse where he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. You're not an imitator of God to become a beloved child. It's because you're a beloved child, chapters 1, 2, and 3, that you are therefore to become an imitator of God. But the therefore goes back just one step past, one one step in the background. So if I take you back to the last verse of chapter 4, it reads, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you, Therefore, be imitators of God. So, Christian character ought to be marked by kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. The Bible doesn't know this concept of, I'm a Christian, but I just can't get past what that person did to me. I'm a Christian, but I can't, I can't, for, I can't forgive that. If I've been forgiven, I am to forgive. That's just the... Therefore, you've got to do it. God's your Father. He forgave you. No matter how somebody may have grieved me, or I've grieved you, the debt we owe God is greater than the debt we could possibly owe to one another. And the Bible's pretty clear on this, and I've already talked about this, but that's the first therefore. The second therefore is in verse 7, where Paul says, Therefore... Do not become partners with them. And it's kind of going back to those who are sexually immoral and impure and covetous. Don't be partners with them. Therefore, don't do that. Because, look at where they're headed. Where they're headed is facing the wrath of God. They abide under the wrath of God. They live under the wrath of God. No matter how wonderful they have it. I'm in Ecclesiastes in my own Bible reading. I'm partly in Ecclesiastes, which is, in some sense, it's my favorite book of the Bible. I, everybody knows I love Ecclesiastes, the meaning of life. It's so hard-hitting. It's so relevant. In Ecclesiastes, one of the things that drives the, uh, the preacher crazy is sometimes the wicked prosper. And the psalmist will talk about things like that as well. And you read about it in the New Testament. It's all over the Bible. Life is life under the sun, life as you experience it right now, is not this neat cause and effect relationship where if you do certain things, you will obviously live this wonderful life. Sometimes cancer hits the people that seem to be on track with God most. Keith Green died when he was 28 years old. I can only imagine the songs he would have sung if he'd lived longer. Rich Mullins died as a young man as well. I mean, uh, Pastor Scott talked about somebody 
related to their congregation, a woman who's pregnant in Peoria, and she's on life support. I mean, I don't have answers for those things. I know God is all-powerful. I know he loves his people. But it's not always so neat that you can guarantee an outcome. But Paul says, these wicked, these sexually immoral and impure and covetous, they abide under the wrath of God. Don't be like them. They are headed where you are not headed. But he also says in verse 7, Therefore do not become partners with them, verse 8, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. There, there was a time, that's exactly where you were at. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And when we were on, kind of unpacking that several weeks ago, we're darkness all by ourselves. I'm dark all by myself apart from God's grace. For me to describe myself as I am light, I'm light in the Lord. The light is not my own. It is Christ's light in me. I'm dark all by myself. I sin all by myself. I don't, need, I don't need God's power to sin. I sin because that's what I am by nature. That's my bent. Because I participated in what Adam did in the garden way back in Genesis chapter 3. But for me to live a righteous, holy, godly, virtuous life on any level, it's in the Lord. All the credit goes to Christ. All glory be to Christ. Start to finish. And when Paul makes this contrast, which he's already done in chapter 2. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins, but God made you alive. You know, you were strangers and aliens without hope, without God. Paul keeps making this great contrast. This is what you were, and it was ugly. And this is what you are in Christ, and it's beautiful. And he doesn't do that so that you're like, yeah, I'm all that. I feel really good about myself now. My self-esteem has skyrocketed since I became a Christian. It's not the, so that you would feel this sense of great honor and, well, it is a privilege by God's grace, but what it, what, why Paul keeps emphasizing what you were and what you are now is because he's wanting to heighten your sense of responsibility. Do you realize what you've been saved from? Do you realize the responsibility you have in light of what God has done? It's a responsibility, but it's also a high privilege. Because God doesn't need us to preach the gospel. He's pleased to use us to participate in preaching the gospel. But God can save people. Uh, I used to, there used to be an old preacher that said, if God wanted to use a yellow dog to bark the gospel, he could use a yellow dog. But he chooses the likes of us. To share the word of truth. So he, he contrasts what we were with what we are so that we would be awakened to living that way. To walking in the light. The last uh, therefore is in, in verse 14. The last part of verse 14 which says, Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Awake to the responsibility and the privilege to live like a Christian. To distinguish yourself from a world that is dying in their own sin. Even as they try to find themselves. Awake to that. That's where we ended a couple weeks ago. I, I went through a series of passages through the Bible where, the, where different people that are writing scripture are calling God's people to awake 
and to separate yourselves from those who don't know God in spirit and in truth. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon, a sermon just on verse 14. I'm going to read a couple lines from it and make a few comments. Charles Spurgeon, my favorite Baptist. Charles Spurgeon said, A person who is asleep may have taken care before he went to sleep to prevent anyone from prevent anybody coming in to wake him up. So Paul's telling Christians, wake up! And he, he's having to arouse them because he recognizes a lot of times sleeping Christians have taken steps to stay asleep. And the way Charles Spurgeon unpacks that is he does it with scripture. That it's easy to fall into the trap of deciding you know what the Bible teaches. That's true for me. It's true for you. It's just an easy habit to fall into, that you've decided what the Bible says. And, and Charles Spurgeon, the way he unpacks it is he says, we have sentinels, we have guards, that if somebody brings up something in the Bible that goes against what we've already decided the Bible teaches, we shoot it down, the guard shoots it down, shuts the door, don't want to hear that. In a fellowship, I'm pushing 29 years. Uh, before I came to fellowship, I candidated at Oriana Baptist Church. So way back in the day. And I told Oriana Baptist Church the th same thing I told Fellowship Baptist Church. I told Oriana, I said, look, they, they heard me. Am I messing with it? Okay. Um, when I came to Oriana, I said, I will tell you, I will teach the Bible, but I can't promise you what I'm going to teach. Because I'm not here to teach should I turn this on? Okay. Now you got... To, now it's like a double barrel shotgun. All right. So I told Orianne, I can't promise you what I'm going to teach. I'm just going to teach the Bible. I'm going to discover it as I teach it. And Orianna said, yeah, we'll take a pass. Uh, they just weren't comfortable. And I thought I had pretty good friends at Orianna. Like, there were people there that I really resonated with. I, I liked them well. But that just seemed... To be thin ice for them. I came to fellowship. I told them the same thing. I said, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm going to teach the Bible, but I'm going to, I'm not going to teach what I think I know. I'm going to teach as I think the Bible reveals itself. And I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to teach heresy. If I do, I, I'm in trouble and I should be shot down. But my goal isn't to be a Baptist. My goal is to be a Christian. And I'm not saying Baptists are bad, because if I, if I had to pigeonhole myself somewhere, I'd call myself a Reformed Baptist. I'm very comfortable with Baptist doctrine, but that's not, that's not where my heart is. My heart is to just follow the Bible. And sometimes it sounds very Baptist, and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and fellowship took a chance. So uh, God in his grace and goodness matched us up well, uh, and I have thoroughly enjoyed uh, the years I've had at fellowship. So Charles Spurgeon talks about this idea of wanting to uh, people sleep when they really don't want to be awakened to what the Bible says. They've already decided what it says. Charles Spurgeon goes on to say, The sleepiness in the Christian is exceedingly dangerous too because he can do a great deal while he is asleep that will make him look as if he were quite awake. And we talked a little bit about that a couple of weeks ago, that you can pray asleep, you can sing asleep, you can read scripture asleep, and we've all done it. 
you've read something in the Bible and, I mean, in some sense, you could check it off and say, I read the chapter or I did my Bible reading. But if somebody were to ask you, if you were to ask yourself, what did you just read? If I'm honest, sometimes I'd be like, I'm not sure. I mean, I saw the words on the page and it's even harder singing. I love music. I love singing. I'm not musical. Uh, anybody that plays the piano when I'm picking the order of service knows I'm not musical. I have no idea what I'm picking. Uh, sometimes I think I know the song and I don't know the song because the hymnal sometimes uses a tune that I'm not familiar with. I'm not musical, but I love music. I love listening to other people's music. Uh, but I can sing songs and really not be in tune with what I'm singing, right? Especially if they're very familiar. You just sing the words like you've sung them a hundred times before. But if you were to really tune into those words, they're powerful so often. And it's so often lost on me. And so Charles Spurgeon talks about the sleepiness can, can be evident in those ways in our lives. And then Charles Spurgeon makes this statement. Well, two statements. One, he says, and oh, when sleeping ministers get into the pulpit, what a curse they are to us. Because you can pre I can preach asleep. Uh, sometimes I'm probably more asleep than others, but sometimes when I'm preaching, it's pretty clear I'm pre I, I know I'm preaching mostly to myself, and I'm pretty tore up sometimes because I really am in tune with what God has said in His Word, and it exposes my sin, and it ought to expose my sin before it. I ever think it may expose your sin, because I'm a sinner preaching to sinners. I'm not somebody who's arrived in Beulah Land, saying, "Come on up, the air is good." Sometimes I'm down in the valley and I gotta preach I gotta preach hard truths to myself. Charles Spurgeon goes on to say along those same same lines, because he Charles Spurgeon says some hard words. He says, You ask me how I can describe this state of sleepiness so well. I answer, because I have been in it myself. I've been in it myself. Charles Spurgeon, hardly a sermon. Uh, you could ever read by Spurgeon and not pull away these golden nuggets of truth. He was quite uh, the preacher, quite the wordsmith. I'd like to pause. I'd love to play a song by Keith Green, but I, I think I'll run out of time if I do that, so I'm not going to. I'm going to keep moving. I'm going to move from those three therefores and this awakeness. I'm going to go back and look at the emphasis in the verses I read, the emphasis or the highlight on the word light. How light plays such an important role in what Paul writes when he says, now you are light in the Lord. And then he says, walk as children of light. Now, the light-darkness image is an image used by Paul. It's used by John especially. But it's all over scripture. It's used in the Old Testament as well. But this image of light. And, and if I'm to walk as a child of light, what does that look like? And Paul kind of describes what it looks like because he says in verse 9, in parentheses, in my English Standard Version, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. So the standard of light is God. God is light. And in him no darkness dwells at all. Jesus said, I'm the light of the world. Jesus is perfectly good, perfectly righteous. He is truth. But I'm to walk in goodness, righteousness, and truth. What does that look like? 
I will tell you, commentators are not at a consensus. There's lots of ideas floating around what it means to walk. If you're a Christian, you're to walk in goodness, righteousness, and truth. What does that look like? It's a little bit debatable. But I'm going to give you Alexander McLaren's take on it. Kind of my second favorite Baptist. Everybody would know Alexander McLaren if it weren't for Charles Spurgeon. He was born about eight years before Spurgeon. He lived more than ten years after Spurgeon. But Spurgeon was so popular, most people don't know Alexander McLaren. So he, he died in 1910. He was born in 1826. Alexander McLaren said, Goodness are the kinder, gentler virtues. Uh, so we're to walk in goodness. There's, think of virtues that are associated with kindness, patience, gentleness, long-suffering. Those are the goodness traits of light. And then the second category, righteousness, he calls the sterner graces of justice. The sterner graces of justice. Because Christianity is marked by both kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, patience, but it's also sometimes marked by having to say a hard word and addressing things you really wish you didn't have to address. And if you're a parent, you know this, because sometimes with your children, you know, you want to be gentle and you want to be kind, but sometimes you have to discipline. Sometimes it requires something harsher, tougher. And so you've got those two things. Then the third one, truth, he calls integrity, wholeness, soundness, Action without compromise. That you administer, whether it's the gentle side or the harsher side, you administer each one appropriately as the circumstances require. Now, obviously, there's nuance here. It's not cut and dry. It's not a litmus test. Sometimes you get it closer to being right and sometimes you don't. But it's learning that both exist at the same time. Alexander McLaren says, note very well, it says, all goodness righteousness and truth it's all that is good all that is right all that is true and alexander mclaren says we tend to gravitate to the one that fits our own character best so it kind of reminds me i really didn't have this in my notes but i'm looking at terry appleby smiling there and it reminds me when terry appleby was like one of our overseers i mean it was always interesting to be in a meeting with terry because terry is He's on the gentle, kinder side. And I'm on the harsher side. I'm a little abrasive. And so things for me are they're more black and white and you know, right and wrong. And, and Terry is, is much more gentle and patient and understanding. And I always appreciated that. I loved his perspective in an overseer's meeting because it brought balance to the way I sometimes look at things. It's like Paul and Barnabas. You know, should we take John Mark on another missionary journey? And Paul's like, no way, no how. He abandoned us the first time. I don't think he's deserving. And Barnabas is like, yeah, but are any of us really deserving? Didn't God give us all a chance? You know, doesn't he give us repeated chances to own up to the responsibility we have as believers? To walk in faithfulness and truth? And, and, and so there was a, a contentious meeting and they divided and split into two missionary teams. Well, fortunately... With overseers, we didn't divide into these two camps. But, but Alexander McLaren says, recognize what your strength is. Thank God for it. Leverage it. But then work on the opposite one. 
Don't just think you've achieved walking in light if your natural bent is goodness and it's to the neglect of the sterner graces of justice. Or, if your natural bent is the sterner graces of justice, you're very sensitive to truth and error, right and wrong, black and white. Don't think you've arrived at walking in light if you're not equally working on the gentler graces of patience and understanding. Because Paul calls us to work in both of those together at the same time. And then the last main thing that I want to deal with is this idea of exposure. When in verse 11 he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed, the same word, second time, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light, which I have no idea what that last part of verse 14 means. Uh, and I didn't spend that much time on it because it seems so unclear. But this idea of exposure, what does that look like? What are we called to do? It's very interesting if Paul had just stopped at what he began by saying in verse 11. Like if Paul had just said, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, stop. What would the church look like? Once you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Stop. What does the church look like? What the church looks like, I think, is they're dark, we're light, and never the twain shall meet. Now, there's a little bit of an element of truth there, because remember I, a couple of weeks ago I told you Corinthians says, come out from among them and be separate. Take no part in their works. That, there's truth in that. But if I just stop at take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, I think it's a us versus them mentality. It's a Christian subculture. Everything we do, it's, it's just our little selves. And we become this little outpost, this little safety place, this little refuge. And we want to make sure we stay away from the them who are in darkness, abiding under the wrath of God. But on some level, Paul expects a certain interaction because he goes on to say... Not only should we take no part, but he says, instead, expose them. Expose them. It's very interesting, Jesus, in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, he prayed that we would not be so separate that it's an us and them mentality. Jesus prayed, I pray that you would not take them out of the world, but that you keep them in my name. And that just as you have sent me, I send them. Jesus, if he wanted to rapture Christians, remove Christians out of this world as soon as we're saved, he could do that. He didn't. He wants us to be here. He wants there to be interaction because that's partly how the gospel is shared. Through relationships. Through opportunities. The problem is, so much of the time I'm sleeping and I miss those opportunities. And I miss the relationships I might have. So at any rate, 
The Old King James translates that word expose as reprove. Does anybody have an Old King James? Okay, your Bible says reprove. That's a little bit different than expose. We're to expose the works of darkness. Henry stands up and says, not just expose, reprove them. That's a little harsher. Let me tell you what the word means in classical Greek. This is in biblical Greek. Uh, those that wrote the New Testament didn't invent the Greek language. All the Greek culture wrote in Greek. So in classical Greek, this word had three layers of meaning. Meaning, and this is according to a, a, a Greek library. A, a, it's called the Complete Biblical Library Dictionary. It says... In classical Greek, the word especially denoted to disgrace, to put someone to shame. That's pretty harsh. When I grew up as a kid, um, my mom, if you were really in trouble, she would, she would shame you. She would be like, shame on you. And it was devastating as a child when you were shamed by your mother. It's like, shame on you. Like, you should be ashamed. It's, it's more than you've done something wrong. It's just, it, it was a not a good feeling. And so... One level of meaning for this word, translated either uh, expose or reprove, is to, to disgrace them, put them to shame. The second layer is it refers to cross-examination, to question for the purpose of disproving or reproving or to censure. Not quite as harsh because you're not shaming them, but you're examining them, you're asking questions, and you're trying to bring them to the point where they see they're wrong or they're uh, seen by others as wrong. You're exposing something. You're exposing the lie. The third level of meaning, and this says, uh, as time, as um, history went on, this came to be what it was most associated with, and that is to examine or to investigate. You're just examining something. You're investigating. You're asking questions. So where does that leave us? Paul tells Christians, we are to expose them. What exactly are we supposed to do? I'm going to take you to four verses. You're going to have to keep up a little bit. We've got a solid five or ten minutes. The first time the word is ever used in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's in Matthew's Gospel. So turn to Matthew chapter 18. You can listen to me if you like, but uh, it's always better if you turn there yourself so you know I'm not taking something out of context or trying to pull a rabbit out of a hat. The first time the word is ever used in the Bible, and I, I forget how many times it's used in the Bible, it's, it's roughly about 18 times. And it's usually, especially in the old King James, it's usually translated reprove or rebuke. That's a hard word. That we're to rebuke those that are abiding under the wrath of God. But the first time it's ever used is Matthew 18 and verse 15. And that verse reads this way. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. Now, this is a case where the word is translated tell. And I think that's pretty good. Because I get the sense in Matthew 18, 15, when you go to a brother who has sinned against you, you're not shaming him. You're not rebuking him. You're trying to reconcile to him. You're trying to mediate this relationship. 
You're conversing. You're trying to bring about peace. You're trying to restore the peace that ought to exist. So you're revealing what's on your heart, the way you've been wounded, where you're at. You try to talk about it. And hopefully you come through on the other side. And where he sinned, if in case, if in fact that's the case, then it goes no further. If not, then there's additional steps that have to be taken. That's the first time the word is ever used. Keep that in mind. The second time the word is ever used in the Bible is in Luke chapter 3. I'm going to show you the first, I think it's the, the first four times the word is ever used in the Bible. We're going to look at all four, then we're going to put them together and decide what is the church supposed to do when we're called to reprove those that are sons of disobedience. The second time the word is ever used is in Luke chapter 3. It's used of John the baptizer. Verse 18, Luke 3, 18. So with many other exhortations, he, John the Baptist, preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So John the Baptist reproved Herod. You've taken your brother's wife as if she belongs to you, in addition to all these other evil things you've done. Uh, I think that's a lot harsher context than me going to my brother that I need to be reconciled to because I, I believe he sinned against me. In this case, you've got John the Baptist reproving Herod, and he's thrown in prison because Herod doesn't like it. Third occasion. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And the last one will be in John chapter 8. And I think this is important because Paul tells the church that, I mean, this is part of our job. It's part of our life. It's part of being in the light and walking as children of light. We're to be reproving. What are we supposed to be doing? The third time it's ever used is in John chapter 3 for context and because everybody should love, verse 16, I'm going to start there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Here's your light, uh, the image of light again. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. The old King James says reproved. Right? I think it's reproved. So, you've got this image of light and darkness again, and those that are in darkness hate the light because if the light is anywhere near them, it exposes them. It exposes what they're living for. It exposes their foundation. It exposes, exposes the thoughts and intents of their heart. And they don't like that. So that's the third time it's used. And then the fourth time is in John chapter 8. And here it's not really, in a sense, it's not really used, but it's kind of implied. 
The only Bible that it's actually in would be, I think, the Old King James Bible. Uh, but it introduces a thought that's implied, it's just not actually written. John chapter 8, I'm going to pick up at verse 2. It reads this way. Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placed her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, and then the old King James says something like, when they heard it being convicted by their conscience, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. So it's implied there when Jesus says, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And what was exposed was their sin, their duplicity, their hypocrisy in catching a woman and contriving a situation. And where exactly is the fella in this situation? And so all of that was exposed and they all dropped their rocks and went away. So those are the four times it's used. Something as, uh, it seems very gentle and conciliatory when you go to your brother and you want to be restored. To Herod getting thrown in prison, eventually getting, or uh, John the Baptist getting thrown in prison and eventually gets beheaded because he rebukes the king. So what is the church called to when we're called to reprove the works of darkness? And my answer is, and you can share with me your answer if you think differently, my answer is it's nuanced. And there's no one right response all the time. Sometimes reproving the works of darkness happens just by being there, just by your presence. I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Cindy's retired now, but when Cindy... Uh, when in the teacher's lounge, sometimes, all of a sudden, the conversation stopped. Because there was a conversation going on that they knew really didn't include Cindy. Uh, and she was a light that was brought into the room. And for them to continue down that course would have exposed the darkness. Now, sometimes they just went right on. But sometimes, if you're a Christian, just all of a sudden, your being there is exposing darkness. Sometimes it's what you don't partake in, which actually fits with verse 11 when he says, take no part in it. So sometimes it's not your presence. Sometimes it's, it's your presence in addition to what you don't do. When everybody else is doing something and it would be easy to go along with the guffaws or the joke or the way somebody is being belittled or what is being said about government officials who I'm not a huge fan of a lot of our government, let's be honest. But the Bible says I need to pray for government, not just tear them down. 
And by saying not just tear them down, it doesn't ever say I should tear them down. It just says I should respect them and pray for them. Because they need the gospel too, which is why I'm glad Kurt was here last week. Because it's good to hear that reminder. We're to pray for government officials. Because that, but for the grace of God, go I. And I would be in that same darkness. So sometimes it's what you don't do. Sometimes it's what you do do. Sometimes it's by asking questions. Sometimes it's sharing a few thoughts. Sometimes it's by investigating, and as you ask those questions and engage in a conversation, it exposes the darkness. And they may become uncomfortable, and maybe you're a little bit uncomfortable. I mean, I play pickleball. I just met, played last week with some people, and they're like, well, what do you do? You're not, you're not retired? And I'm like, no, I'm not retired. Well, what do you do? Well, I pastor Fellowship Church. I mean, that, that sometimes, sometimes they'll carry it. But usually, it's like you give, give them a baton, and they, or it's a hot potato. It's like, I don't know what to do with that. And they, they don't, the conversation stops. Sometimes it doesn't, but a lot of times it does. But I just embrace that. I let them know I'm a pastor. Uh, I don't cuss on the court, so that's good. Sometimes, it's not just your words, it's your actions. And sometimes I think that, sometimes the church is a little too quick to go to level four. Level four is you're actually protesting and calling out the darkness in a, in a way that has to be called out. Okay? Sometimes it's not just by being there. Sometimes it's not just by uh, what you don't do. Sometimes it's not just by asking good questions. Sometimes the church has to say that is sin. It's destroying families. It's destroying culture. And we need the gospel. Sometimes you've got to do that. And you've got to decide. You've got to decide. What is God calling you to in each of your own unique circumstances? I don't... Remember, Jesus said, uh, when he, in John chapter 3, when he says, The Father sent me into the world not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Now, by Jesus' coming, he exposed works of darkness. By Jesus' coming, he exposed works of darkness to such a degree they nailed him to a tree. Okay? He exposed works of darkness. But the reason why he came was to preach the gospel, to preach a message of salvation. So if the church loses its way and all we're known for is holding placards and writing letters and making posts about all the sin in the world and how it's all under the damnation of God and we lose a message that there is hope in Christ and the people that are broken and lost can be restored, then we've lost our mission. We've lost our mission. As Christ was sent into the world, he says, so I send you, not to condemn the world, but with a message of salvation. And by our going, we will expose works of darkness. We're called to. We're called to. But let's not lose the message of the gospel. What are your comments and questions? Carrie, talk loud, girl. That's good. And, and, I mean, walking is such a huge principle in Ephesians. We've seen that before. We're coming up in the last walk is, is right around the corner. Because in verse uh, 15, it says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we've got walking in love. You've got uh, walking in light. 
and now you've got walking in, in wisdom. And it's this huge image in Ephesians because walking is living life. It's living life. You are living life. It doesn't mean you're living, uh, walking in love or light or wisdom. But that's what we're called to do. And so if I'm going to expose things by light, it ought to be motivated by love. That's a very good point. Cindy, you're really going to... Okay, the question was... The question was, she liked how when it, it, Paul starts off with walking in love earlier in the chapter, he follows it up with walking in light later. So to walk in light, you've got to first walk in love. Uh, kind of a cart and horse situation. Who is that woman? <laughs> Somebody else? Comment or question? Dr. Eve, my favorite doctor. I, I think you could argue that in the end of strong people are going to be the best. Did everybody hear that? Did you hear that over there? Okay. We're good? Did you hear that? Okay. Uh, she likes she likes the word. She likes to be shamed, is what Eve just said. <laughs> She was making the point that in our culture, it really, uh, our culture needs to be shamed. Because our culture, I mean, ACDC, way back in the day, saying, well, I'm on the highway to hell. And it was like a joke. And it hasn't got any better. Uh, and so our culture, on some level, does need to be shamed. Although I would still say it's one, one response out of the possibilities. It's one response out of the possibilities. And I would say... Kind of going back to what Andrew McLaren said, if my response tends to be kind and gentle, I probably need to work on stepping it up and being a little more uh, bold in confronting sin on occasion. But if my tendency is to, every time I think somebody has done something wrong uh, or violated a scripture principle and I call them out and I warn them and God is, you know, if if that's my go-to, I probably need to work on the gentle side. Because I think the whole gamut is what the church is called to. And there can't be one, one way to do it all the time. Because I look at Jesus and he treated sinners different ways. Kind of depending on the circumstance and the, and the uh, condition of their own heart. I'm not Jesus. So I realize I don't know what people are thinking. I don't know the condition of their heart like Jesus did. But to the best of my ability, I need to assess... This situation, what has God called me to on in this particular set of circumstances? Do you have a follow-up? Absolutely. We've all experienced that. Yeah. yeah. And what she said is, <laughs> this is kind of funny that I'm doing this, because I'm not good at doing this normally. That sometimes, no matter how gentle you are in exposing a sin, it doesn't mean that it's, it, it produces a good result or it's immediately received with any kind of gratitude. I mean, I'll be honest with you. If somebody comes up to me after the service and, and, and corrects me like, oh, I think you were wrong on that point, my initial reaction is, oh, I so appreciate that. I so appreciate, you know, I, I mean, or, or you, what you believe about this particular point of, of doctrine or what you know, is wrong, and I'm, oh, I, I'm just so looking forward to when people do that. Uh, my initial reaction is, I think I'm right all the time. 
So if you come up and say I'm wrong, I don't, I don't like that. I know in my mind I'm wrong. I'm not always right. I get that. I know that's true. But, but can you identify with me when I say sometimes it comes slowly? Sometimes it's just hard to own and face the facts that you were wrong about something. But by the grace of God and humility, we will do that. We will do that. I won't be so asleep that I'm so comfortable with my doctrine and my practice that I think I've got it all right. I don't. I have changed over the years. And by the grace of God, I will continue to change. Rick? So Rick's talking about even in, in their Roman culture, in their Roman culture, uh, what Paul is calling the church to is in such a time when it was very decadent as well. Our, our culture is not uh, uniquely decadent. And Roman culture had really gone to pot. And, Paul, and the city of Ephesus had the Temple of Diana, which was a very immoral expression of worship which is why Paul is addressing that specifically in, in Ephesians chapter 5. It's just very immoral. It was very sexualized. And Paul addresses it. Uh, it does need to be exposed. But there also it also needs to be motivated by love. And, and the church, again, is ultimately called to a gospel message of salvation, not just a condemning message of damnation. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.